hey everybody. Good to see all of you today. Um, first thing I want to say though is happy birthday to Thrive Church. Um, yeah, yay. <laughs> people, I heard people at home louder than all y'all, so uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, the older you get, the better you get unless you are a banana. That is uh, from one of my favorite philosophers, Betty White. Yep, that's really good. And put that one on there. Uh, yeah, so birthday celebration, we're going to do that next week. Um, yes, uh, we've had some sickness on our staff. And um, so please uh, continue to be uh, praying for the health and safety of your Thrive Church family, leadership, and uh, all who is involved. And thank you, Molly, for being willing and able to fill in again for us. We really appreciate that. And I also wanted to remind you, if uh, you haven't done your video yet of, you know, what you love about Thrive Church or what you appreciate or what you remember, please get that filmed and sent into us by Tuesday because we want to put it into a great big montage um, and uh, play that one next week. So you got an extra week. And if you were in high school, you'd be like, yes, now I can wait another three days, right? No. Try to get that done for us. I'm, I'm really excited to see what, what everyone says. So I, I think that'll be fun. So if you can do that, that would be, that'd be fabulous. Um, and also, before I get rolling here, I want to make sure that I talk briefly about the uh, uh, charity event that we're doing with, um, uh, for the Afghan refugees. And uh, we're collecting diapers, wipes, and then $25 Walmart gift cards. That's what um, Catholic Charities have, has asked us to, um, to provide. So we're, gonna, we're collecting those today. I, I'm just going to extend it out. We're going to collect it next week because my guess is that the need just doesn't stop um, in one week, right? So if you've got um, that and you forgot it or you're like, oh, yeah, it's fine. You get another week to do it. Uh, we'll be collecting it. So if you have any specific questions, I can try to answer them after service, or you can talk to Gina, and um, between the two of us, uh, hopefully you'll get, <laughs> get the answers that you need, um, but I saw out there already, we've collected quite a bit, that's pretty good, so it's pretty exciting, thank you for participating in that, so, uh, okay, so my plan today <laughs> was to speak to our, our five years that Thrive has been in, in existence, um, but under the circumstances, I think I've got one more in me with the life of David, if that's all right. Uh, I thought, well, I might as well just kind of return, return to that. And so in our story, um, where we are in 2 Samuel, brief recap, uh, Saul is dead. There has been civil war between David and Saul's um, extended family, um, but that's over. David is consolidating his power, and he does three things, three important things. The first thing he does is he captures the city of Jerusalem from a group of people called the Jebusites. <clears throat> now, if you do any bit of historical work in the Old Testament, Jerusalem, where it sits, has always been held by the Jebusites and has uh, seems to have been a thorn in the side of Israel for a long period of time. Well, David finally takes care of that, and um, he moves his capital there. This is, this is a big deal. It wasn't Hebron for a period of time while he was fighting battles with Saul and his family and 
Now he's moved it to Jerusalem. Um, And he builds a palace there. So he builds himself a home, uh, a really nice home with, you know, lots of rooms. But then the third thing he does, and probably I would, I would suggest might be the most important of the three, is he brings the Ark of the Covenant there. Now, if you uh, remember your Indiana Jones, <clears throat> if you remember your Steven Spielberg films, you know all about the Ark of the Covenant, right? So the Ark is the place, more or less, that was the epicenter of where God would actually dwell. Ten Commandments were in the Ark and a couple of other artifacts, but ultimately this was the embodiment of the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant held that. There is, there, there, there's some evidence to suggest within the text that it was actually almost like a throne. So keep that in mind. Whenever you see Ark of the Covenant, think throne. Um, anyway, so he... David decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the capital. Up until this point, it had been in a tent uh, somewhere outside um, of any major city. It was with a particular individual. We'll read about that here in a moment. And so he moves the, the Ark of the Covenant to the capital with great fanfare. I mean, this is like Macy's Day Parade on religious steroids, okay? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And I want you to see this because it's really quite interesting. So we're picking up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you might want to turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have it, hey, that's cool. I'm going to have it on the screen. But you probably should have it with you too. It's good for you. So here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. And everything he has because of the Ark of God. This is the Ark of the Covenant. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So there's this individual, Obed-Edom, who has been kind of the caretaker of the tabernacle and caretaker of the Ark of the Covenant. And his household has been blessed simply because the Ark was with him. And frankly, the man was faithful in in his care of, uh, you know, all of the things of, of worship, especially the ark. Moving on. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, So maybe a little bit longer than the carpet that I'm on. Every six steps, they made a sacrifice. That's a lot of brisket, man. (laughs) Think about that. That's what I'm talking about, religious fanfare on steroids. Every six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, this is verse 14, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and and the sound of trumpets. Okay? So so picture this. You've got the ark, and if you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, they had these big poles, and there were people who were carrying the ark, and 
and they would go six steps and, and you know, uh, this bull was, was sacrificed and a calf. So you had two things. And there's shouting and there's praising and I'm guessing there's singing and there's trumpets and there's a lot of music and a lot of fanfare. Um, I don't, uh, I didn't see how, how, uh, how far it was to Jerusalem, but I suspect that it, um, that it wasn't very far. In fact, I, I think I read somewhere that it was like three miles. Still, that's a lot of bulls, right? I mean, this is a lot of meat that's getting, getting sacrificed. But it, it was quite a sight. I mean, this is a massive party, and the king fully participated in all of this. Now, <clears throat> I want to quick hit the pause button right here because last week we talked a little bit about worship, and it's a big part of, of King David's life, and, and it really started in the fields, right? I mean, he's in the pasture with the sheep, and he's singing his praises, and he's composing songs, and he's got his, his, uh, his guitar with him, and he's, you know, he's making up worship songs, but what started privately is now public, very public. And so David is, is worshiping God with all his might, singing and dancing. And I would, I would argue that a good portion of David's greatness was due to his level of worship. Now I want you to think about that a little bit, because it's real easy for us to, to tie all of uh, David's success to his ability as a military commander um, or his uh, personal charisma or the, the fact that, you know, he's, uh, he's a rock star, you know, kind of a thing. I mean, it's real easy to, 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 to take the success that he's had and to invest it in who he is as a person. But what I want to suggest to you is that who he is as a person comes from his worship. Does this make sense? He did it privately when nobody was watching in the field, and now he's doing it publicly when literally everybody is watching. I mean, you want to talk about extremes, but the heart of David was for worship all the way through. <clears throat> and I think that it demonstrated, in part, his loyalty, the fact that he really was after God's own heart in this. I think that's a, a big um, point to make through all of this. But, but here's the thing, and this is, it, it would be so easy to just stop right there and go, oh yeah, we should just worship more. But I want to suggest one other thing, is that all of this came at an incredible cost. Okay? Here we go. Keep going. Second Samuel chapter 6, beginning with verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David... Um, Michael, or Michelle, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Michael, daughter of Saul, who was David's wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now hold up a second. So, <clears throat> when David defeated Goliath, shortly thereafter, he's given a test which he passes and the reward for that was he got to marry this woman, Saul's daughter. This is what made David Saul's son-in-law. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front, this is a rocky relationship to begin with. But, and there's several little details in here. But here she is watching this party going on. 
And the term here is, and she despised him in her heart. The word in Hebrew carries with it the idea of being trampled. Now think about that for a minute. Despised him in her heart. And the idea is trampled. So, so maybe, there's different ways we could say this, but maybe his stock just dropped in her mind, right? His credibility as a king, whatever it happens to be. <clears throat> but she saw him and despised him in her heart. When David returned home to bless his household, okay, after all of the fanfare, uh, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. This is dripping with sarcasm. Okay, it's just dripping with it. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Okay, now there are some things in the Old Testament that just sound better in Old Testament language. This is one of them, right? I mean, just half naked in full. I mean, I, just, I can't help it, but I gotta, I gotta say it, you know, with a certain amount of venom to it. It really is, is kind of a, an astonishing thing. <clears throat> David said to Michael, it was before the Lord, which implies this was not for you. This is before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. Did you get the feeling that David just threw down? I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. This is one thing I really appreciate about great leaders. They keep the important things important. Because it would be really easy to go mix it up. A little domestic dispute after a big party. And yet David keeps the important thing important. No, no, this isn't about you. And, and let's review the record. I got picked over your dad and any one of your family members. I mean, it's a harsh thing to say, but let's be honest, she despised him in her heart. That's, that's rough. But the important thing is, I am doing this for God, and I will be even more undignified. Why? Because God's been faithful. See? It's an important thing. It's almost like she's saying, that's not how a king acts. But maybe, maybe, it is how a servant of God might act if he's filled with joy. Which is more important, at least in the mind of, of David at this point. And obviously, you know, God and history, because this is what we remember let's talk about this idea of worship and its costs because worship, its fundamental definition is just ascribing worth or value to God or something else for that matter. I mean, you can, you can worship something else and we do it all the time, especially in this country. It's usually on Instagram, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, you, you understand this. Um, 
But when we really, truly worship something, whatever it happens to be, it costs us something. It may cost you resources, right? Uh, when we're worshiping God, what we're saying ultimately is that we're, we're, we're taking a bit of our resources and, you know, let's just call it what it is, our money, uh, our checkbooks, whatever it happens to be. And when we, when we give, what we're saying ultimately is, God, you're the source of all of this. I'm just going to give some of it back to you. Now, you can call it an investment. You can call it whatever you want to. Some, some folks call it a tithe. But when you worship, when you give, it's an act of worship. And so, God, you're acknowledging God as a source. And he's valuable to that. He, has, he is worthy because he is the source of those good things. The other thing that it will, it will almost always cost you is your pride. David demonstrates that here. But really what happens when you worship, when you're, when you're singing here, and if you get your hands in the air or if you don't have any hands in the air, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that what you're ultimately saying is that I recognize my position to you, God, and I am not that high. God is greater than I am, and I'm going to say that out loud in the words that I sing and in the posture that I take. Another thing that it might cost you is your agenda. Oh, we don't like that one. We'll give our money before we'll give our agenda, our plans. But I think what happens when you worship, you're saying, God, you're worthy because you see the bigger picture. You understand everything that's happening. I get this much of it. And so when I worship, I am acknowledging the fact that you've got a bigger picture, first and foremost. The other one that struck me, it hit me uh, this morning in the shower. Again, in the shower. Why is it always a shower? Anyway, the thing that really struck me is that the very minimum thing that worship will cost you, it will always cost you something. And it will always cost at least this, your time and attention. Because if you're really going to worship, if you're really going to acknowledge God for who he is, it's going to take you a couple of minutes. It, it, it just will. So <clears throat> in our house, uh, we, we attempt, oh, we, don't, we don't do it all the time, but we, we attempt, Lisa and I try to pray together every night. Uh, we do it with our kids, but we try to do it just as a couple as well. Um, some days are better than others, or some weeks are better than others, but, but it is, it's our intention to try to do that. And what's so interesting to me, and I've, I've caught myself many times, may, maybe you, you've experienced this too, I'll sometimes forget, just by the course of the day, things are going on, things are happening, um, or I'm thinking about what i got to get up and do the next day, and so I'm tired, and I just want to go to bed, and so I'm, and Lisa will invariably say, she'll say, hey, do you want to pray? And I've got a clunky mental transmission. And sometimes I have got to shift gears and go, oh, yeah, that's right. It's hard. Sometimes it takes me a couple seconds to go, yeah, I need to get my head out of my agenda, out of my plan, out of my thoughts, and I have to turn those back to God. And sometimes that's not easy. But that's what worship costs you. It costs you your time and attention. 
you know what? You may have to, you know, spend a couple of minutes just centering yourself before you pray. But if you're going to worship, and I would suggest to you that prayer is part of your worship, then that's something that you, that you have to do. You have to sacrifice your attention. You have to sacrifice it. I know you're tired. And I'm not going to guilt you into it, but maybe you ought to pray a little bit earlier than that, right? I mean, just a thought. Heaven forbid you should shut off Netflix and pray. I, it's hard for me too. I'm, I'm not saying that to guilt anybody, but the point, the point is that you see, the very minimum, worship will always cost you time and attention. When you come to church, it's your time. Hopefully it's your attention, that you're actually focused on what's happening here, that the Lord, the creator and the sustainer of the universe is right here. He's with you. And oh, by the way, nobody can worship for you. You have to do that for yourself. Now, it's fun to listen to, to Molly or to Dan to, to sing and to, to play and, and, and to be a part of this. It, I mean, it, it's great to do that, but if you're actually going to worship, you got to do it for you. That's not something that they can do for you. Now, there may be other things that you have to sacrifice as well. I don't know what those are, but I think you understand the point. Worship always costs something. Always. And at the very minimum, it's your time and your attention. But if we're serious about chasing after the presence of God, if we're really serious about becoming a people of the presence, and I'm going to talk about that more in a few weeks, but if we're really serious about that, we're ultimately talking about worship, both private and public. Both of those things are occur. And, and I would even suggest this too, that there is a reciprocal relationship with those two things. That your private worship does affect your public worship and vice versa. It's a lot easier when you are jamming in church on Sunday to go home and still jam with church. If you don't believe me, come to my house after church and listen to my 10-year-old rock out the worship tunes for the rest of the day. It's just cool. But some of that she gets from here. Normally she's like that all the time. This just amps her up, right? And so it is with us. It's always easier to worship after you've worshipped corporately, but the fact of the matter is your corporate worship is so much better if you're worshipping innerly, privately. There's a relationship between those two. And what I want to suggest today, and here's the kind of the point of all of this, I think, is that worship is central to knowing God. Knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but actually knowing God. And in, and in turn, um, I think that, that knowing God is the first part of what we would call true or authentic discipleship. If you actually want to follow Jesus, you kind of got to get to know him. Because otherwise, you don't know if you're following him or not. So notice what Jesus says here. Um, this is uh, Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Whoa, wait a second. So they're doing good things, prophecy, uh, or prophesying, uh, exorcisms, miracle working, 
And Jesus still calls them evildoers. <laughs> now, there might be a little bit of hyperbole going on here, and there might be some exaggeration in order to make the point, but what's central to all of this? I didn't know you. I didn't know you. So that part of the relationship seems to be kind of important. Would you agree? At least from what Jesus is saying here. It's really interesting. And more than a little convicting, I think. I didn't know you. Knowing one another is true, authentic discipleship. And and how much more confidence do you have when you know someone? So, those of you who've been married for, you know, a little bit will understand this. There are certain things that you just simply know how your, your spouse is going to respond. Like if you go out and buy a new car without talking about with them, that's probably not a good idea. You, you know how that's going to go down, right? If you uh, stop on your way home and um, buy flowers, you know how that's, how that's going to go down too. Either they're going to be really happy or they're going to wonder what you did wrong. But you know that there's a response there because you know that person, you understand. And let's be honest, that there's a part of us when we know someone and we have that level of intimate relationship with them, we want to make them happy, we want to please them and vice versa. That's part of the beauty of the relationship. So too it is with Jesus. And sometimes I think we try to formalize our relationship with God and he goes, no, 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 I don't think you understand. I really want to have a conversation here. I really want this to be being, yes, I know everything, yes, but I really, I made you who you are and I've put all these little cool idiosyncrasies into you and you got little quirks and you got funny little habits and some of them aren't real healthy for you, but the rest of them, I put them there just to make you interesting. And I want to know that part of you and I want you to know what I have in mind for you and how proud I am of you and how much I love you. Remember, when we get to know God, it's not just about what we're doing wrong but rather all the things that he did and what he's excited for us to do and to be. That becomes a big part of that. And and what's more is that this whole sentiment, this whole idea about knowing God is echoed by by Paul. Here's Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering. Yeah, I'm not so, so sure about that one. Uh, becoming like him in his death. Ooh, wait a second, hold on. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Oh, that sounds good. But the fact of the matter is, is if you have spent any amount of time on planet Earth, life is suffering. There's just suffering here. Whether you have aches and pains in your body, whether you've dealt with disease, whether you've dealt with death, whether you've dealt with trauma or violence, If it's not you, it might be somebody that you know. The point is there's suffering on the earth and at least when you know Christ, something can come of it. Because we serve a God of redemption. And he redeems those kinds of things. But in order to get there, you kind of got to know him. Does this make sense? So throughout the text, we see this idea of knowing God, of knowing Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Yeah, I'm I'm all for that. Resurrection power sounds really cool to me. Because lame beggars walk and blind people see and, and miracles happen and all that. That all the result of the resurrection and the fact that the Holy Spirit is among us. 
but becoming like him in his death to participate in suffering, you go, you're already going to suffer. But here, if, when you know Christ, suffering begins to take on new meaning, at least I think. That's my experience anyway. You, you never know anyone if you don't value them. So knowing God begins with worship because you're ascribing value to Him. Let me say this again because I think this is important. If you've got a journal, you might want to write this one down. How can you know someone if you don't value them? I mean, think about that for a moment. There are people in your life that you, you just simply don't connect with. There's, there's not chemistry there. That's okay. It's okay, and you don't know them. And you don't know them because you don't have that kind of value for them. And, and you know, there's more people than I have time and attention to give, right? And we, we all have that. But those people that are in your life that you truly value, that you want to know and to be known by them, it requires that you value them. That's how you get to know them. That's why you married who you married. Because you valued them. Does this make sense? So when we talk about God, knowing God begins with worship. Because in that moment of worship, we are valuing him for who he is and the things that he's done. Are we connecting the dots here? Nod your head so I know you're awake. Yeah, good. All right. I think that's important. Now, I've been thinking uh, about this for myself. Um, actually, quite a bit. Um, I've been thinking about this idea of public worship. Now, I think we all learn from observation, um, especially if you've grown up in a certain church tradition. Um, I grew up in a in a Lutheran church, uh, so we had a big organ. Organ music was really important, and um, worship was really about singing hymns well, and you were, you were really good if you didn't need the hymnal. <laughs> and some of us learned that the whole point of singing hymns was to try to outsing the organ. It's an important thing. But then all of a sudden... Somebody raised their hand. Wait a minute. What's that person doing? What's going on? And then I went to a concert that was full of Pentecostals. Oh, Lordy. That was interesting. Woo, hands up and shaking and moving around. And, and Anyway. But we, we observe how to worship publicly by the people that were around. We, we ultimately bring people into that that little culture. So you sing and you, you raise your hands and then you might sway a little bit, right? Right? You, at some places they clap and it's two and four. We're worshiping Jesus here, okay? Not this one and three stuff, right? Two and four, we get a clap. And then in some churches, man, you are really getting down if you bend your knees while you're doing it, too. Now, if you've ever been to an African-American church, y'all are just amateurs, right? Mmm, that's my kind of worship. That's good. 
And, and as you're doing these, emotion, uh, these, these motions, you experience a certain amount of emotion. And that's, just, that's part of the whole worship experience. It's not the whole thing, but it's a, a big part of it. And some people are super expressive, right? Um, some of you have seen some of my immediate family members. My children tend to be very expressive when it comes to worship. Um, and and that's, that's cool. I, I enjoy that. And it's not just because of my kids, but I enjoy watching people um, express themselves because I know that they're connecting with God. Other people, they don't, they don't express themselves like that. And it, and it may have something to do with introversion and extroversion. I don't, I don't know what that is. But the point is, is that there are just some people, like um, many of you people know my wife, and I can say this because she's not in here right now. Uh, but but um, my wife loves worship. She hates being late for worship. She likes when she sings a song, but she's not the kind of person who raises her hands. That's just not who she is, which is okay because I'll do it for both of us, right? But the, the point is, is that based on your personality, you're going to find out, and that's all right because it's really what's going on in here. That's what I'm concerned about. You want to do this? Awesome. This is biblical. Lifting up your holy hands is what Paul talks about. Yes, there's biblical, yes, but if that's not you and you're this way and you're inside, that's cool too. Because I want to know what's going on here. What's going on in your heart? What's that thing? How are you connecting with him? If you're finding with con- connection with God in some way, I am not going to stop you one way or the other because ultimately it's really about you getting to know God. And that's really what I want for all of us. But the question then comes when we, after we talk about public. Okay, here's kind of how public goes. But when do we learn about private worship? Because we don't really talk about that. Because it's private, right? It's something that happens on a personal level, and I'm not sure that we ever really talk about that, and so I'm going to try to rectify that today, just a little bit. How might we worship when we're alone or with, with just one or two other people, maybe even your spouse? Um, <clears throat> you can do what you do on Sunday mornings in the privacy of your prayer closet or whatever it happens to be, and that's fine. You can do that. Um, but there might be other ways to think about it. So let me just offer a couple of thoughts on this. Just a few. I think that when we're talking about private worship, what's going on inside us when we're just alone with our thoughts, when we're alone with God, it might be best if you just start with something you value. <laughs> just start with something you value because it costs you something. So maybe um, you value music. Then, then here's a thought. Turn off the classic rock and grab some worship music that you like and sacrifice that time and attention for a moment and say, Lord, I really like this particular song. Every now and then, I'll come across a song that I really like or a band, and I'll just jam on that for a while. I need that. That's, that's what I like. And I find myself emoting based on it. Um, great band right now called We the Kingdom. Can't get enough of them. Love them. And it's, it's got the kind of vibe that I really like. But I also recognize that there's a connection here with, what, what, with what's going on in God's heart too and, and how he's trying to connect with mine. So maybe music. Start with something you value. Uh, maybe you value reading. Um, put down the novel or your phone and maybe grab a Bible. 
and just start reading. Um, there's a lot of different Bible reading plans, but what I would tell you is just pick one of the, one of the four Gospels to start with. Uh, a lot of people l- um, will tell you to start with John. Mm, that's okay. I think um, if you're going to read devotionally, just read it as a story. Start with Luke or with Mark. Luke's probably pretty good. The language is easy to understand and you can get an idea of what the story is like, but just start reading something. Um, in October, let's see, this is October the 3rd. Uh, you might want to try this since there's 31 days. Try reading one um, chapter in Proverbs because there's 31 chapters in Proverbs. There's a thought. My wife's done that on a couple of occasions. It's been very interesting. So, or read Second Samuel. There you go. We've just been talking about that. So anyway, so if reading is your thing, sacrifice what you would normally do and, and pick up something that's related to God and approach it and just say, God, this is so I can get to know you. I want to get to know you here. Um, me, I have value thinking time. I really do. Um, so I pick up a pen and a journal and I interact with God that way. The point that I'm trying to make here is you do you. I want you to do what you do because God made you that way. And, and if God made you that way, he's going to be able to connect with you that way. So find the, those things to, that you value and then offer to him what's valuable to you. Maybe you value conversation. You just, I just love talking to people. Um, Molly's daughter, Briley, and my daughter, Eliana, are buddies. <coughs> and um, they were together this week. And so we, they spent the day at... Um, at uh, Molly's house, and then we picked them up. This was Friday or Thursday, and they did a sleepover at our house. And uh, I can tell you from absolute experience <laughs> that those two little girls value conversation because <laughs> it did not stop the entire trip. The only time it did is when we fed them. I texted Molly when I got home, and I'm like, I'm exhausted. I didn't even participate in the conversation. But you might value the conversation. Great. Ask somebody a spiritual question. I don't know what that question is. You know what it is. You know what? I was reading this thing in the Bible, and I'm really kind of confused about it. What do you think? It's not as weird as you think it is. But the point is, is, is that you, you find a way to connect with God, to get to know him in something, in a, in a way that you find valuable. Hopefully that makes, makes some sense to you. Oh, and by the way, experiment with it. Double-dogged area. Try it. See what happens. Be very interesting. Uh, and then finally, pray. Because prayer is worship. Because it's, it's at least your time and your attention to pray. And I don't mean one of these prayers where you're just saying the name of God a hundred times. And Father God, we pray this, and Father God, we pray that, and God, we want to know this. And look, if that's the way you pray, that's fine. I understand it. But <clears throat> what I'm saying is when you pray, pray simply, and I mean ridiculously simple prayers. God doesn't mind. It's all right. Simple prayers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer just one thought. Um, I do this in my own journal where I will do uh, a couple of lines of worship sometimes, not all the time, but very often. And I will write very simple statements because I, I, I don't want to be distracted by anything else. 
I can converse with him later, but when I'm worshiping, it's different. And so I will start with something like this. God, you are. And I fill in the blank with one of his attributes. That's all I do. God, you are. God, you are good. We just sang about that, right? Goodness of God. God, you are good. And then I spend just a couple moments remembering when God was good to me. Because that's part of worship too. You are recognizing the things that he's done and you are bringing that back to your mind. And oh, by the way, when you realize that God has been good to you and you, you see those moments when he has, you're getting to know him. You're getting to know him and his nature and his character. He is good. God, you are good. And if you can't think of any reason why he's good, I, I, I always come back to this. Are you breathing? He's good to you. Maybe he's kept you healthy. Boy, in today's world, that's, that's a good thing, right? Maybe you're still working. That's a good thing. Remind yourself of those things that are good. Uh, I've told this story before, <clears throat> um, but those moments where I begin to doubt the goodness of God, I got a 10-year-old running around my house whose birth was a miracle. God's been really good to me. And those moments when I, when I get frustrated and, and I, I don't understand what God's doing and I'm like, okay, God, I'm not feeling the good here. And I, I see that little one walk into the room and go, hi, Daddy. Or my oldest one who will call me up on FaceTime and say, hey, Daddy, can I run something past you? <sighs> Man, he's been good. I get to do that. So think about an attribute. God, you've been good. God, you are faithful. God, you are holy. God, you are righteous. God, you're generous. I'm talking super simple prayers. And then reminding yourself of how God has demonstrated that to you. And I would, I would say that would be a fun experiment. Each day, pick a different attribute and then try to remember when he's been that way towards you. I think you'll surprise yourself. In every case, you're going to come up with some example of where God has been that. Be very specific when you're trying to remember that attribute. Um, something that he's done in your life. Or if you can't think of that, then try to think of some, uh, a, a time when he's done it in someone else's life. And barring that, you can always go back to the Bible. And you can figure out where God has been, say, good or faithful or holy in the Bible, and you can say, I remember that. But ultimately, this, this tries to bring you back to this idea of knowing that person, to understand the response, the perspective that God is coming from. It is always for your benefit. We've sung this song before. He is for you. And there are going to be moments when he's going to call you to do things that seem a little crazy. I, I can tell you that from experience. I moved from Wisconsin to Oklahoma. Let me tell you, it was crazy enough going to Wisconsin, but then coming here too. But the point is, is that, that when, when God is getting to know us and, 
and we're getting to know him and we're attempting to build that relationship, there are things that seem crazy to you that ultimately work for your benefit because he is good and he does have your best interest at heart. And he's trying to build the kingdom and he wants to use you to do it. That's pretty exciting. We get to do that. And so I want to encourage you today, more than anything else, is to think in terms, borrow from David if you have to. Think in terms of worship. How am I worshiping every day? How do I acknowledge God? How do I ascribe value to him each and every day? There's a couple of ideas on how to do that. Because what happens privately will translate into what happens publicly. And here's the interesting thing. This always happens. It's like a big flywheel that you keep pushing over and over and eventually that thing will just take over by itself. If you worship privately, you begin to push that flywheel because then you get in with your brothers and sisters on Sunday morning, you begin to worship publicly together and you're pushing that flywheel. And then pretty soon you find that that worship and that relationship and that knowing God and that constant conversation begins to take over and then it's just like, well, who do I get to worship with today? Who do I get to be with today? What is God doing today? How can I be a part of his kingdom today? And it just keeps going and going and it picks up steam and it's super exciting. 